0: Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash-Burnett. Welcome back to Berlin Side Out, the foreign affairs podcast that takes an expert look at international politics from Berlin in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, senior research fellow here at the council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron Gashburnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. Aaron, how did it come to this? It's our season finale. Already hard to believe it, isn't it? Yeah, it it, it
1: is actually. It seems like just yesterday, and yet forever ago at the exact same time that we recorded our first episode uh, in Berlin, Berlin's summer heat, I might add. And now we're wrapping up our first season
0: in the February cold. (laughs) That's right. And the mere 105 episodes that we've squeezed in between now and then will be familiar to all of our listeners, I'm sure. (laughs) But don't forget to catch up with any you might have missed along the way. Yeah, as well as a few that you might like to listen to again, just to to kind of brush up on some of the themes um, if you think uh, that might help. Yes, our families tell us that's not the worst form of torture they've known from us.
1: No, they even tell us that they like certain episodes. It's amazing isn't it? (laughs) But um, I mean, now, uh, like then, uh, we have a lot to talk about. Ben, as you might expect, I've been thinking a lot this week about our first episode on Germany's Seitenwende and one memorable line we've heard over the course of the last few months in our work together uh, within uh, DJP's action group, Seitenwende, which you, uh, of course, head up. uh, And that is, a lot has happened, but not much has changed. Uh, what's your sense of where we're at uh, since we kicked off this Berlin Side Out discussion all those months ago with that first uh, chat about Seitenwender?
0: Well, Aaron, yes, I think back to that a lot. And it was Britta Jakob on our first episode who said, uh, if only Olaf Scholz and his government followed through on what they'd promised, that would really be a vendor. We're still waiting for that to happen. Sadly, Just Um, fulfill your commitments. (laughs) That's right. Do do what you said you were going to do. That would be a Titan vendor. But we've recently argued with the Action Group Titan vendor that uh, this security transformation that we've been talking about throughout this season is incomplete, seriously incomplete. And it's also dangerously inadequate on its current track, So, despite the manufactured budgetary crisis, the Schultz government really needs to finish that task it started. Um, And that relates a little bit to the line you just quoted, which was actually from Minna Orlander, another of our guests on the first season, um, in the first episode saying that a lot's happened, but not much has changed. And that's a harsher take, but I think it's fair, largely speaking. And the work of the Action Group, Seitenbender, and you can read our our published assessment of this that came out just um, a little while ago. Uh, There's a link to that in our show notes. Um, But to actually finish the job, Olaf Scholz and his government would need to be really honest with the German people about the state of the world and about the state of Germany. I think it's useful to talk a little bit about that now to summarize a little bit where we're at, uh, across the different themes which we've seen as being key to understanding this transformation. It's important to emphasize that, indeed, among those things that has happened, uh, Germany has changed its stance on delivering weapons to Ukraine. We remember the uh, ignominy of the 5,000 helmets uh, early on. Um, Clearly Berlin's come a long way from that. And they've given Ukraine weapons in sufficient quantity to help stave off defeat. But Germany has been one of the key drivers of a policy that has stopped short of giving Kiev what it needs to win. And of course, we know that Schultz blocked the invitation to get Ukraine into NATO in Vilnius, together with Joe Biden, it must be said. And it's that uh, lockstep between Washington and Berlin that we talked about on the last episode that seems to be driving this current policy, which many of the analysts in our action group, many of the experts don't think is going to do the trick, don't think it's sufficient to either help Ukraine win um, nor to actually secure Europe in a proper way. And so this actually makes us all less safe, which was precisely not the intention of the Titan vendor speech. I think back to uh,
1: Caroline de Groote, something that she said on our episode on Central and Eastern Europe, that the country that has changed the most uh, in Europe since February twenty two twenty two is Germany, and the one that still needs to change the most is also Germany. <laughs> um, and uh, this... It basically, I think, speaks to uh, this tendency within the country to sort of self-congratulate. As we heard from Broderick Parks in the first episode, congratulate ourselves because we broke national taboos without... Thinking. okay, what's actually really needed.
0: Exactly. It's, it shouldn't be about your own taboos. It should be about looking at the state of the, the world, looking at the state of our geopolitics, looking at the state of our security, and not saying, look at how much we've done, but saying, what do we need to do? do we need to and do? then go out and doing it. And I think this is something that's really frustrating for a lot of analysts and experts here in Berlin at the moment, is the shift in government rhetoric. And we've seen it again this week from Olaf Scholz, calling on others to do more and saying Germany is the second largest supporter of Ukraine in absolute terms. And that's true. But in relative terms, compared to GDP, Germany is really quite far down that list. And while it is the case that others also need to do more, there's no doubt about that. And we could look in the direction of Spain, of Italy, of France on that, even the UK, which took more of a lead early on in the conflict, but has stepped back somewhat since then. They can all do more, but Germany too should be looking at what it needs to do rather than what it's done. And that's what is still not happening.
1: And also, can is there more that it can do? How, um, is it doing everything it can? You know, Taurus would be a huge um, step in the right direction, symbol of that, right?
0: Well, that's it, Aaron. Not sending Taurus is such a clear indication that there is so much more that the German government could do and could do now even that they're not doing. A clear path to NATO would be along those lines as well. But we've still not seen Olaf Scholz even say that he wants Ukraine to win. We've still um, not seen the true reforms to the Bundeswehr, the procurement system, that would help actually rearm the Bundeswehr. We've not seen the financial commitment that would get Germany beyond that 2% target in the medium term. Yes, Germany will meet 2% this year, likely next year as well. Beyond that, it's extremely uncertain. And even if it does meet 2%, as Andrew Michter said to us very clearly, and we've said numerous times, you know, pension payments and accounting fixes deter no one. It's what you get for your money that's important. And Germany is way short of having the capabilities it needs um, to meet its self-declared special responsibility for European security.
1: Which is a phrase that's right in the uh, security strategy, (laughs) which we're ill-equipped to do at the moment.
0: That's right. And I mean, one of the benefits of the national security strategy was it did lay out a lot of the current problems that Germany faces, a lot of the current challenges, the state of the world as it is. But it wasn't strategic in any meaningful sense in terms of prioritizing, in terms of clarifying, in terms of allocating resources and laying out a clear plan to achieve a particular and clear vision and to understand how to seize opportunities to do that together with allies, and how to address threats, and to ward off those threats to getting to that goal. What was the better side of that strategy? It was, it was um, integrated. It had a so-called integrated security concept at its heart, and that's very much the approach we took from the beginning with the action group Titan vendor here at the GAP. We looked at the Titan vendor, not only in terms of security and defense, but also in terms of energy and climate policy, uh, economy and trade, and digitalization and technological change. Why did we do that? Uh, Because there were clear spillover effects right from the off. Um, When it became clear that Germany wanted to take a different policy on Russia, after the full scale invasion, one of the first things that was acknowledged in the Titanbender speech on the 27th of February was the need for Germany to get off Russian gas and fast. And Aaron, like so many things, that was impossible in German discourse until it became until inevitable. It became yeah. Well, until it became inevitable. And this los. is, but well, <laughs> we, we were alternative lowest until we decided to find an, uh, find an alternative. Right. Um, and so this gave fresh impetus as well to the discussion on Germany's energy mix and put that discussion about whether there should be nuclear power, controversial topic that we touched on in episode five, um, what role fossil fuels should play in the mix and what role renewables should play. Thankfully the titan vendor speech and the process of the titan vendor opened up that conversation to put germany's energy policy firmly in its geopolitical as well as its ecological and economic context now it's fairly clear that not everything has yet been got right in that regard, but there has been some progress, hasn't there?
1: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, we have, um, we're no longer importing uh, anything from Russia as far as gas is concerned. We have seen some progress here, but we are still um, tremendously dependent on, um, for example, Chinese solar panels for um, that part of our energy transition. Um, and we are actually going to be one of the last uh, countries in Europe to uh, even exit coal. Uh, so, and that's something we spoke about in episode five. Was our reputation as being a climate leader has also taken a huge beating since uh, February 2022 as well. So, a lot of site and vendor is needed.
0: It certainly is, um, and there's no site like the present to get cracking with it. Uh, this this is the problem. I mean, change change is difficult. Change takes time, especially if you don't start. And while Germany has started, it's really not gone far enough or fast enough. That would be one of the main messages coming out of our action group Zeitenwender. And if you look in terms of who supplies Germany's energy, sure, Germany's got off Russian gas, which is a step forward. But its new mix of providers includes Qatar and Azerbaijan, neither of which are exactly democratic standard-bearers or champions of liberal values in the world. It does also include Norway, which might have a better claim to be such. Some people, um, including I think it was mentioned on our episode six uh, by Guntram Wolf, see the problem in the past as having been a lack of diversity of supply. Whereas others, myself and I I think you included, Aaron, would see dealing with authoritarians and enriching autocrats um, as inherently problematic in itself for geopolitical, moral, and ecological reasons. So that points to the need to accelerate the country's green transition from fossil fuels to renewables, which we heard a lot about from Claudia Kempfert and also from Vivek Kovinter and others. But the problem is, what you mentioned just a second ago, a lot of that green transition is dependent on China. So there is a serious geopolitical risk that has not been factored in properly to Germany's green transition.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's another uh, thing that we have obviously talked about uh, in week six um, when we discussed geoeconomics and the kinds of dependencies that Germany has developed um, when it comes to authoritarian regimes, something we also have to address uh, in a new grand strategy for Germany, which we are going to talk about here a little bit more in depth in a minute. Um, And we have also discussed in our episode with the Canadians uh, about the need to um, look at our allies, particularly Canada in this case, uh, to diversify. diversify properly and to be sourcing from uh, our friends as opposed to our adversaries.
0: That's right. And one thing that's become very clearly out of our conversations with business leaders during this process of the action group Titan & Wende, is that they are very keen to work more closely with government to better align the sources of our prosperity with the sources of our security. But they do need government help to do that. I mean, businesses do risk assessment on the basis of their bottom line. They don't always necessarily factor in geopolitical risk or the risk to the societies uh, where they, they operate or particularly the societies they're based in. So in this case, German companies should perhaps be thinking more about... Uh, the impacts on Germany as a whole of their business activities, but also they need help from government to seek alternative markets. If our message is we should be seriously de-risking from China, even to the stage of decoupling, which we've discussed on the show before, then where are the alternative markets for this, and why are we um, not helping these businesses find alternative markets? If we think that is a geopolitical priority, we need to help them out with the geoeconomic aspects of that. And so, understanding how business and government can become better allies in the process of not only defending but renewing liberal democracy and restoring our, pro- our future prosperity then we need to seriously think more how to do that. And thankfully, Aaron, help is at hand, or will be at hand for a select view at the Munich Security Conference, where we'll be talking about just that.
1: Exactly. Well, I think back to last week, uh, our guest Kai Whitaker actually also brought up an important point that um, in order to diversify from China, German businesses also needed to have um, viable alternative markets. And one thing that would really help that was an actual uh, a restart of discussions with the US on a trade agreement, that uh, that really should be a priority as well. When we discuss uh, German grand strategy and uh site and venda from an economic perspective, um, but realizing uh, sight and venda from you know every aspect of it, I think requires you know it, it requires Germany to have that new grand strategy. Now, strategy has historically been a dirty word in German foreign policy, uh, something uh, that we've somehow moved beyond in Germany in some sort of end of history world of yesterday, as you like to call it. Uh, ben, you were even called a fascist on Twitter recently for advocating
0: that Germany have an actual grand strategy. Yeah, this is one of the odder insults I've received on Twitter, because I think I was talking about the need for to have a grand strategy at all, to, to, uh, to have a strategy at all, indeed, and also to have something that could unite the nation around. And I think democracies need to be able to unite their people. We see at the moment, a lot of division. And this is something that we talked about in relation to both the US and Germany. There is serious discontent here in Germany at the moment. And uh, there was a recent piece by Oliver Moody in the Times about this winter of discontent, this winter of rage in in Germany that uh, we're we're living through at the moment. But the very notion that somehow providing a unifying vision around which a society could unite is fascist does rather indicate the state of the problematic debate that we often have here. The very notion that having a strategy implies a certain fascistic tendency also indicates the the depth and breadth of the problem here. Now, it's not everyone, of course, but there are a lot of people on, um, particularly I would say the, the, the far left, who tend to take those views. And I think it's incumbent upon those in the center, whether they be center left, center right, or center center, to say actually there is potentially a progressive vocation for the nation. Now, you could call it uh, patriotism or you could call it progressive nationalism. Nations really are still a major point of identification for most people around the world. Now, this is uncomfortable for a lot of uh, progressives in particular to talk about. It's uncomfortable for a lot of people who believe in the European integration project very deeply to talk about. And it's uncomfortable for Germans to talk about, because in the same way that many Germans think their country has got over the need for strategy, that sort of base desire to have a strategy, they think they've got over nationalism as well. And this post-national society has been a feature of Germany's post-1945 um, situation. The question is, does that still serve the purpose? And something that, uh, together with Julian Stockler, uh, we argued earlier, um, well, in 2023, is that no, it doesn't. And so this sort of Habermasian worldview of post-victory, post-national, post-war society, is now actually a hindrance to Germany uh, in it pursuing its interest, but also in standing up for its values and in standing up for liberal values and being a good team player on the liberal democratic team. So I think a lot of this does come together around this discussion about strategy and that's why we're excited to be doing more on that. Well, and I find this
1: critique that having a strategy is somehow inherently immoral uh, to be ridiculous myself for two reasons. The first is that, as our friend Chris Alexander said uh, this season on Berlin Side Out, our adversaries certainly have a strategy. (laughs) Uh, Second, prior to February 2022, Germany did in fact have a strategy. Um, A strategy is still a strategy even if you don't call it that or you don't say the quiet part out loud. It is a mistake to think that there wasn't one, or that you don't have one, or that you've moved uh, beyond the need for one because the strategy was quite simple. It was to outsource our energy to Russia, our economic growth to China, and our security to the United States. And Germany made active choices to ignore warnings from Central and Eastern Europe over Russia and press ahead with Nord Stream 2. It chose to ignore American and Asian warnings about an increasingly threatening China. And it chose to ignore expert warnings that Germany needed to invest more in its own defense to plan for what might happen to America. American security guarantees given the rise of Trumpist isolationism in the U.S. Republican Party. And ignoring these warnings has cost us a lot. Uh, Besides losing a lot of credibility, these strategic blenders have been very expensive. 200 billion euros to get through a winter without Russian energy. Overexposure to China, which has an outsized influence on everything from our overall GDP, as we've been talking about our supply of solar panels, and even children's medicines. And the prospect that even if we get to spending 2% of GDP on defense, as we've been talking about, even if we do get there, it's no longer going to be enough. If the U.S. Uh, starts turning its back uh, on NATO. Uh, For years, German foreign policy has placed interests above values.
0: Right, and it's the question of how explicit people were willing to be about this that also raises some of the suspicions about grand strategy. And I mean, Germany, many of Germany's allies have been clear that while Germans think they have not been pursuing their interests, everyone else largely sees Germany has been pursuing its interests, it's just rather miscalculated them and took a very narrow view of that, putting it in economic and geoeconomic terms first, much like it pursued its interests through creating the European Union, in which it's been so instrumental in doing, which benefits all, but certainly benefits Germany out in an outsized fashion. So The unwillingness to actually articulate that raises questions about a democratic deficit. And so something that we've advocated recently, and you can find a link to this in the show notes, is the need to develop a more democratic grand strategy. And you're absolutely right, Aaron, this is not the time to be strategilos. Uh, If we look at the challenges we face in the world, and the challengers we face, who, as you rightly said, do have their strategy, it's not the time to be without strategy. But there's two ways to have a strategic deficit, or at least two ways, um, perhaps three, actually, if we think about it. One is not to have a strategy and as you rightly said that's not been the case, it's just not been explicitly avowed and it's not been up to the task and that's the second way to have a strategic deficit is to have a really bad strategy and that I think is what we've seen um, to a significant extent and that, that's been revealed in the last two years to, to more and more people and many Germans recognise that the third one is to have a strategy and badly pursue it and if it, this is I think something that touches upon what we've talked about in relation to the Schultz government a lot which is they do seem to have a plan. They do seem to have a goal in mind, um, and I would say that falls into the last two categories of strategic deficit. Which the goal, which is basically to maintain as much of the world before February 2022 as you can, uh, and to pursue this by a sort of half-hearted approach to supporting Ukraine by supporting Ukraine not enough to to or supporting Ukraine so it doesn't lose, but not enough to win. I think it's pursuing that strategy badly, as well as being a bad strategy in the first place. Again, is that explicitly avowed? Well, Scholz does put his goal there. Does it actually add up to a grand strategy? I would argue no, because it doesn't go across the different fields that we identify. So for example, geopolitics, geoeconomics, the technological transition, and ecological transition. I don't think the current strategic positioning of this government is coherent across those fields. And we're going to see one field undermining the other as we have in the past. And the other thing, that, and
1: as you've pointed out, is the issue of where democracy comes into us, this. If you don't put out a grand strategy that is easily communicated, easily accessible, easily understandable, or that you at least very clearly sort of st- stand up and show some leadership and say, this is what uh, I want to do here. Um, y- you know, you're, you're not getting the kind of support that you need for that, which on the one hand, um, from an input perspective, isn't very good democratically because the people really don't have the chance to actually have input into that properly. But at the same time, uh, you lose the people because you're not communicating it properly either.
0: Right, you're not getting them behind you, certainly, and I think this is where the government has really missed a trick. Um, is that there's, there seems to be big demand for this kind of strategic thinking of politicians who can put the issues together in a meaningful and coherent way. And that's that's what we heard from Roderick Kiesewetter when he was on the show, and it's what we've heard from many of the politicians we talked to here in Berlin. But it's actually not unreasonable to have a suspicion of grand strategy as such. And terms like grand strategy are wrapped up with terms like geopolitics, uh, for which there is a very particular understanding in Germany that's actually quite different than our understandings in other countries. Nonetheless, there are good examples examples of where grand strategy over the years, we could point to, for example, the administration of Ronald Reagan in the US, um, who pursued a grand strategy towards the end of the Cold War of peace through strength combined with quiet diplomacy. Now, the peace through strength side was much more clearly emphasized in public discourse, but it was something people could relate to, it's something they could see when the uncompromising attitude of the Reagan administration towards what was at various times referred to as the evil empire of the Soviet Union, or that the quest for freedom was never far from Reagan's lips when he was giving big speeches. Now, that was combined with another side, but it's not beyond the realm of Uh, reasonableness to expect a government to also be undertaking diplomacy and this Resolute stance through peace through strength so equipping the u.s. To be strong equipping the west to actually be strong and NATO to be strong Enough to actually then negotiate from a position of strength and to ensure our deterrence in Europe to ensure our security in Europe while actually in fact bringing uh, to bringing to an end the Cold War Uh, because the Soviet Union couldn't compete with that, because they were actually being hollowed out from the inside. Now, you might also say that that victory in the Cold War was followed by a period of rather hubristic liberal hegemony, and that was characterized by certain liberal grand strategies. But I think we we can see the point that there's a need for a democratic grand strategy. There's a need to actually do this in a democratic way, particularly in a society like Germany. And again, that's something we've been trying to work out how better to do here at the DGAP. Well, and your society, as we've said
1: um, several times this season, needs to be worth uh, defending. Part of that is uh, making sure that there is um, that your system does remain a democracy and that you can continue to prove the superiority of democracy uh, over authoritarianism. And well, not to feed the authoritarians either. This is another thing that if you put it the right way, um, the pub- it resonates with the public. I do remember a very, very memorable line from Gigimondus um, from, from the the chair of the Lithuanian Foreign Affairs Committee, don't feed the tigers. Yeah, really, that was on
0: episode 10, <laughs> wasn't it? <Yeah>. When <laughs> and, uh, there was another zinger on that show as well, when Marco Mikkelsen uh, spoke about in, in the Baltic states, they see people see freedom as a duty. As a duty, exactly. And something to live up to, to live up to the potential of freedom. But it's up to our governments to do that as well. And I think what you said before is really interesting in that regard because we do need to renew our prosperity as well. And that brings us back to that discussion about how business, society, and government all have a role to play in this. And Getting all those different actors with their noses pointing in the same direction is a key element of what we see as neo-idealism, as a potential grand strategy for liberal democracies, of the, the internal side of team power. But of course, to do that, you do need people on side and you need that clear goal again. Which is
1: part of what uh, we're doing in a new group here at DJP, right? What can you tell us about
0: that? That's right. The Grand Strategy Group, which had its first publication out just a couple of weeks ago, making this case for a democratic grand strategy, is really looking at ways to bring those actors together and to set, to have the kind of discussion that would allow us to set objectives that the whole of society could get behind. And if you don't think that the whole of society actually getting behind something is a necessarily fascist endeavor, then this might be something you'd want to uh, to be involved in. And We think that to do that, we also have to address some of the previous shortcomings of uh, Grand Strategy as it's been done elsewhere. One thing is asking, who is this strategy for? Is it for particular societal actors or is it for everyone? Um, Who is it with? So which allies is it with? And who is it against as well? Uh, So who are the targets of this? Who are the threats to our objectives? And therefore, how do we actually effectively oppose them? It means recognizing that you do have adversaries and indeed enemies in the world, which is something that has come hard to Germans uh, in the post-Second World War times. Just to point out, there's a very interesting analysis out this week in Internationale Politique Quarterly from uh, Leonie Stamm, who's one of my colleagues here at uh, the DGAP and a member of that grand strategy group talking about how uh, feminist foreign policy perspectives can actually help us overcome that dichotomy between values and interests that's often held up. And we remember, of course, uh, Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock's famous line on that. Uh, Yes, that the distinction between values and interests was total crap. (laughs) That was a direct quote in English, total yeah. crap. Yeah. Um, so how to able to overcome those or how to actually recognize, which is what uh, Foreign Minister Baerbock was getting at, that these things are highly complementary, they're not necessarily opposed, if you conceptualize them right. And the kind of work that Leonie is doing on that, I think, is really valuable in helping open up ways to, to see those things as linked as complementary and as having potential uh, coherence, Ben.
1: A lot of points that we have talked about, um, both when we were just discussing grand strategy just now and uh have come up several times over the course of our season. We talked about uh, the need for uh, strategic change to help Ukraine win and the opportunities uh, that would bring. That think back to our interview with Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister Olha Stefanishina uh, There, alongside Mick Ryan and parliamentarians like Rodovic Kizovic. Christian Klink and Alexander Mueller. Um, we talked about how a new grand strategy is much easier uh, to realize and more likely to be successful if we kick it off with Ukrainian victory.
0: One of the reason we've talked about Ukrainian victory so much is because of the role that we think that plays in actually set, helping us set our strategic picture and set up the better platform for a grand strategy that can uh, actually serve the interests and values of liberal democracies. I mean, at base, what I think we should be aiming for is to harness our ordering power to try and create a world in which is not only safe for democracy but in which free societies can thrive and obviously that has a lot of different components but one of the key elements of that at the moment is facing down the biggest threat to that which is russia's assault on ukraine and it's assault on liberal democracy and liberal ordering If we don't face up to that, and if we don't push through for victory, it sends terrible signals about our resolve. It sends terrible signals about our preparedness. We know we lack capabilities in Europe alone, so we continue to rely on the US uh, at the moment, and that's, that's another discussion that we've had repeatedly through this season. But also, whatever capabilities you have, if you don't show you're willing to use them, and if you show that you're back down, or if you show that you're not going to pursue your interests, um, which in many cases are, as we said, the defense of our values, then it makes you a much more tempting target. It makes Vladimir Putin look and say, "Yeah, maybe they're a bit soft, maybe we can actually get our way there, or maybe we can bully and intimidate them into doing that without even firing a shot. And so I think this this is why many of us see Ukrainian victory as essential to put the West, to put the democratic world in the best possible strategic position to then go about achieving its strategic goals. So that's something that's very important as a question of morality and right for Ukraine. It's essential that uh, Vladimir Putin's aggressive acts don't get rewarded for that reason, but also because if they are, it will directly threaten us. Uh, Eventually it puts us in a far weaker position.
1: Well, as you uh, just uh, quoted Marco Mikkelsen there, one of our guests um, this season, uh, chair of the Estonian Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, freedom is a duty. And I think that probably encapsulates uh, what you said um, very neatly. uh, And it was
0: our other guest on that show, Artis Pabriks, of course, who said in Berlin previously that we are ready to die for freedom. Are, Are you? We're willing to die for freedom. And that's the signal we're really not sending at the moment at all. That's one of the reasons why
1: uh, we specifically decided to start looking at Germany's relationship with Central and Eastern Europe um, before we went to France and the UK and the US. Um, we did that partly because these are the countries that really get exactly what we're talking about, the importance of freedom as a duty, of, of deterrence, of really being able to uh, set a precedent um, or to avoid Putin setting precedents that are favorable to Russian aggression.
0: Exactly. And the Central Eastern European countries have, with the obvious exception of Hungary and some wavering in a couple of other places, had a much clearer view of the threat from Russia and what to do about it. We've seen serious leadership from uh, the Baltic states, um, from Poland on the military side of aid to Ukraine, from the Czech Republic... And what the Baltic states and the Czechs in particular had in common, uh, also with some of the Nordic states on this, is that they combined the moral cause together with the need for material support for Ukraine. And while a lot of people have said that's to do with those countries' history, with uh, Russia or with the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire in different forms... We think it's really actually to do with the future. It's about safeguarding that future um, because people know the cost of living in unfreedom in those societies from their historical experience, but they don't want that for their kids. And they also see the possibility of actually reviving hope if we get our domestic societies right. And getting that together is what inspired uh, me initially and now us to develop this concept of neo-idealism that we've seen coming out of the Baltic states, which there's a bit of work to be done on it yet, but we're in the process of doing it. Uh, We think it has the potential to become a grand strategy for liberal democracies. So we're looking forward to doing more work on that. Absolutely. We are talking about societies
1: that are uh, simultaneously very focused on the future, that want things, that have a vision um, for things, which I think that we have often lost in Germany. But I think that we are also dealing with societies that even though they have that eye towards the future, they have another very clear eye on the past, I think. And one recurring theme that we've spoken about a lot uh, this season is memory culture, or selective memory. So we talked about that with Ulrike von Hirschhausen, uh, that we in Germany have forgotten uh, the way that imperialism can still actually does uh, influence our thinking. We have in the past viewed uh, Central and Eastern European countries the way that Tom Silvis reminded us as the Svisionländer, the the in-between
0: countries. And indeed overlooked them when looking to the great power to the East, and this sort of latent great power gaze that we see in German policymaking is still something that's to be overcome. But another aspect of that selective memory culture that we've dealt with a lot is the the lessons that Germans draw from history. The notion of never again is a big one in German society, but it's never again what? Is it never again war? Or is it never again fascist expansionary dictatorship, which needs to be stopped by war? Now, as, as a Brit growing up, you learn that lesson very clearly what it is but i think sometimes the lesson here is not as clearly learned as it could be because it seems as though there's an aversion to war as such which of course is is understandable but so the recognition that sometimes war is necessary to stop that kind of fascist expansionary dictatorship to stop imperialism has still not permeated enough of the decision making processes here i think
1: we have internalized the nightmare of war but not the uh, nightmare of occupation the way that central and eastern european countries have but the other thing that we have forgotten and we brought this up especially on episode three with ben hodges is the fact that there was a time where we actually did have a proper war fitting in in, in germany as you've said half a million men under arms uh you 5, know five thousand tanks yeah there you go I mean, that
0: would be the envy of any force in europe right now and this this was it. Germany was a frontline state and behaved like a frontline state, was armed like a frontline state. Now, a lot of people, I think, undermine the German role in that. They say, well, look, Germany was effectively uh, under US and UK um, allied direction at that time. But no, Germans had a choice in that. And they stepped up during that time. As as with all the allies during the Cold War, there was a you know, periods of wavering, periods of uncertainty. But overall, Germany undoubtedly stood up to be counted. And it's been interesting to see Boris Pistorius as the German defence minister draw on his experience as a young man during that time, which of course is rather different than Olaf Scholz's experience at that time when he was someone who was opposed to NATO's dual track approach, for example, as we heard from Roderick Kieserwetter. The other thing about that selective memory from that time, we heard from Gustav Gressel on episode three, too, about what it was that brought down Uh, The Soviet Union, what it was that led to the end of the Cold War, what it was that allowed German reunification. And the misreading of that history or the misemphasis on um, parts of that history, we think still does damage now.
1: I remember a clear quote from uh, Ben Hodges, uh, that episode, which was, um, from an American perspective, Germany is our most important ally. It doesn't mean our favorite; al- it's our favorite <laughs> ally. I think probably one of the reasons is because, um, you know, Germany has clearly forgotten its, its strategic history. The U.S. obviously hasn't.
0: But at the same time, we see this situation where Berlin and Washington are very closely aligned on their policy at the moment. Yeah. So it's interesting to see the current administrations being in step. And that's something we have to reckon with in our analysis as well, um, which doesn't seem to fit with the other American approaches to, for example, China or to geoeconomics, which are quite different than the German approach at the moment. But on Ukraine and on Russia, they are aligned. So there's a question about whether the Biden administration there is also actually serving America's long-term interests.
1: Well, absolutely. I think that's definitely a good question, at least as far as the European theater is concerned. Although certainly the MAGA-based alternative is not preferable. We have to to get that in as well. And we have um, also discussed this season why uh, we need better procurement. Um, We need to talk about extended deterrence. That's something that we brought up with um, Ben Hodges, with um, Edward Stringer, with Alexander Vindman. Um, And really uh, looking at our comparative advantages um, to be able to revive that European industrial base, should that, you know, because uh, the the need is becoming quite clearly uh, into focus, whatever happens um, this November.
0: Yeah, that's it. I mean, most conflicts, it's a cliche to say it, but it remains to a significant extent true, are contests between economies. And if you don't have the economic might, or worse, if you have the economic might, but you're not willing to use it to actually step up your production to create the capabilities and create the impression of resolve that you need, then you're going to be in a bad way. That's precisely the bad track that we've got ourselves on vis-a-vis Russia at the moment. I mean, Russia is, is spending a huge amount of its GDP on military equipment. It's got its economy on a war footing. We don't. We haven't sorted out our procurement difficulties. And in Germany, they are legion. Most countries in the West have them. But in Germany, it's a particular case. Um, We've heard repeatedly that the German procurement system is simply broken and needs to be replaced with a new uh, system. That's not yet happened. We haven't given the orders to industry. We haven't invested in the extra capacity. And while uh, we promised to have a million shells by March, we now know that those million shells for Ukraine are only going to come by the end of the year. We know there's big deficiencies in the amount of ammunition that we have, in the breadth of munitions we have, and the breadth of equipment that we have in our militaries. So we've not seriously got that picture yet. Um, The US has done a better job on stepping up on that, but even there, there's more uh, that could be done. Now, the The problem, of course, of this is, is that at a time of budgetary constraints, uh, politicians will say we need to make savings. Well, as we emphasized with Ola Stefanisina, there are savings you have to make and there are savings you can't afford to make. I think it was Andrew Michter who said national security is the irreducible function of the state. And it has to be without that security. There is no chance for anything else. And remember, too, and especially in our Ukraine discussion, we made this point, but I think that we can
1: make this point in a lot of different discussions, is to stop seeing certain things as costs and as investments. We invest in Ukraine's victory. That doesn't cost us the same way. If we uh, are able to help Ukraine win and we're able to ensure that it has a clear path to both NATO and the EU, we gain a lot out of that. The effects to our economy and our, and our security would be um, quite immeasurably uh, positive.
0: They would. And this, this, of course, though, raises the, the question about what we need to do in our domestic societies as well. Because you're right, talking about investments is something we talked about a lot. But if people are going to believe those are investments rather than just costs, they've got to see a credible vision for a better future. And there's a lot of people, let's be honest, who are really dissatisfied with the way our political economy is at the moment, with the way our societies run. What's been really encouraging in Germany recently has been to see more than a million people come out on the streets in cities across the country in the main cities, in the West, the North, the South, but also in the East of Germany, to protest against the IFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, um, or Alternative for Germany, which is an anti-democratic party. And to see so many people take to the streets and say, no, that's not for us, that's not in our name, we do learn this lesson from our history and we're not going to stand for this again is truly encouraging, but my feeling is that without clearer political direction and again without that vision for a better future, those protests will remain protests, they won't actually develop political momentum. To get the traction we need, we need politicians who are going to say yep, we recognise there are things wrong with our societies, here's how we fix them and here's how we're going to fix them for, for everybody in order to actually have the kind of resilient, cohesive society Society with a vision of progress, which can, I think, unite people, um, that's the way that we can actually capitalize on this momentum. If it's just more of the same, we face a kind of situation of 2016 all over again, where the forces allied against Brexit, for example, or against Trump, we're in effect offering nothing different than a defense of the status quo. And that's a status quo that is really known to be inadequate by so many people that it's no wonder it's uninspiring. And I think that speaks to one final point, I think, that we
1: should bring up uh, that has come up again and again and again uh, this particular season. Obviously, there is, as you've said, the the need for better leadership and more vision. But the other thing that has been encouraging, as you've just alluded to now, is the German public. Um, It has consistently been ahead um, of the elites on questions of... uh, Support for Ukraine, even on questions of becoming less dependent on China. We've seen public opinion polls uh, really demonstrate uh, that Olaf Scholz uh, doesn't really have public opinion to hide behind because public opinion is already ahead of him. Jan Eichhorn gave us one of our more most memorable quotes this season about. Is this, this
0: going to be cake?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the cake quote about, you know, have it, eat it, and not get fat from it. But we have discovered um, from his research that Germans really do care about these questions of geopolitics and geoeconomics, even if. If they wouldn't use those terms and we are going to be hearing a bit more from jan in the future
0: we are and the uh, action group titan vendor is going on tour around germany to a series of outreach events um, which will be preceded also by focus groups uh, with various um, people from around germany to understand a bit more about how everyday germans see the transformation they are going through how they would see the transformation they would like to be going through and how they would formulate a better vision for the Germany they want and the world they want. So to actually understand putting that together in a grand strategic way, where the democracy fits into grand strategy and how that uh, fits into people's understandings of the Titan vendor as well. And we'll be looking forward on season two and also in the continuing work of the action group Titan vendor to be updating uh, you on that. We'll be continuing obviously our work with decision makers and decision shapers and informing public discourse as well.
1: And sometimes public discourse also influences us and on that theme. Uh, welcome again to you. Julen Stuckle, our project assistant here uh, on Berlin Side Out, uh, once again on the show with a few questions uh, from our listeners.
2: Julen, I'm curious about some of these. Uh, Hit us up. Thanks, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be back on the show and freshly prepared for you. I have some questions right from Twitter. We asked listeners about what they would like to know from us, and here goes the first question. From Andrew Haydash, what would Germany do under the current leadership if the U.S. pulled out of NATO, and NATO territory is being attacked?
1: I think at the moment, unfortunately, my answer is that it would it's very hard to tell. Um, I think we would probably see, at the very least, an initial reluctance from this particular leadership to do anything, partly because I don't think this uh, leadership understands uh, really in its heart that NATO's Article 5 doesn't just bind the US, it binds everyone. Article 5 says an attack on one is an attack on all, not an attack on one is an attack on the US. Uh, However, the degree to which I think that's internalized is really, really up for debate. At some point, I think that this leadership would probably be pulled into um, needing to act, partly because also they know uh, that uh, Germany's own security, um, territorial se- security, uh, would be uh, potentially jeopardized if they didn't. Um, I mean, who's going to act uh, if suddenly we have a missile attack um, somewhere near Berlin uh, if Germany doesn't act in, in, in reverse, for example?
0: This is a really important question to address right now. So, Andre uh, Haidash, thank you very much for raising this. And thanks for all your continued support for the show on Twitter. We, we've noticed and we appreciate it. Thank you. A lot of people would say Say this is scaremongering. I don't think it is. I think this is about being prepared and thinking in potentially worst case scenarios. Because if you're prepared for the worst case scenario, then you'll definitely be prepared for the better ones. As long as you don't only allow your thinking to be dominated by the worst case, then it's a reasonable precaution to, to actually take. One thing I think we've seen from Ukraine is that people want to fight for freedom. And people are often willing to fight for freedom in ways that are surprising. Now, There was a lot of surveys done in Ukraine before the full-scale invasion. And it was interesting that the only one of the 20-plus US intelligence agencies that thought the Ukrainians would seriously fight back is the one that had the polling and did the polling of people there. Um, The polling is a little less certain in Germany. Um, there's been many polls showing that Germans might not be willing to fight, but I suspect should push come to shove, that would increase. Big question here is about what would Germany fight with? Uh, Where are the capabilities? But also, is there the willingness among the leadership to use those capabilities to, for example, hit Russia where it hurts? Now, we've seen a series of analyses in the last few weeks and months, including from the DGAP, talking about when it would be that Russia might be able to regenerate its forces. Uh, In the time after the Ukraine conflict and those range from um, six to ten years as the estimate here was to five to eight years which Boris Pistorius the German defense minister has mentioned to two or three years which is what most of the intelligence agencies and experts on the NATO eastern flank seem to think those give us different time horizons to rearm. But we really do need to rearm in order to be prepared for such a war, in order to reduce the likelihood of it happening in the first place. If you look a bit tasty, if you look like you're tough enough, then the likelihood of getting attacked is far, far lower. And that's the situation we have to get to, a situation where Vladimir Putin looks and says, "Mm, not today don't fancy that. So that's what we need to be working towards. And the understanding that peace comes through strength and that hope comes through strength is not something that's strong enough in the German discourse at the moment. Now, the current leadership, they're not currently taking the steps to rearm Germany properly, nor to arm Ukraine for this. There would be real questions, as in that recent thread on Twitter by our, our friend Fabian Hoffman, talking about if there was a deep strike, as you mentioned, close to Berlin or somewhere in Germany with the, the deliberate intention to try and subdue and to push Germany into not responding. What would be the response to that? Would Germany use its own deep-strike missiles to hit back at Russia? Would Germany be willing to continue to do that? Would the leadership be willing to continue to do that while taking casualties? These are questions that Ukrainians have been asked and that they've been answering consistently. And I think we need to do more to understand from them Um, the dynamics of this and this is something we're going to be looking at more on season two escalation dynamics deterrence and how it works and the role of various weapons in that but there's that clear mix of capabilities and credibility resolve that comes into answering this question and certainly i think a lot of people would have big questions about the current german leadership in that regard they can change that by showing that um, they are going to do what it takes in Ukraine and they're going to do what it takes to rearm Germany. That would go a long way to reassuring allies in that regard.
1: So a big question also, I think, um, is how credible can this Lithuanian brigade um, be Uh, that would give us a few clues as to what the answer to this question would be. I think Ben and I obviously um, share uh, some pessimism around how leadership would react to something like that. But I do think that if we look at how Germans themselves have reacted to Ukraine being attacked um, and the huge shifts in public opinion that we've seen there, I do think that public opinion might actually be more likely to shift uh, in favor of uh, responding um, to an attack on a NATO member.
0: That's right. And the brigade does play a key role in this. Obviously, they will be there from 2027 in Lithuania, 4,000 German troops uh, as the tip of the spear. Now, the tip of the spear requires the follow-on force as well, of course, but that would be a real test for Germans being put in harm's way. And it's interesting to note, when, when artist Pabrik said, we're willing to die for freedom, are you? That uh, didn't take into account the role of the German soldiers in their own capacities who have died in the defence of freedom in recent years in campaigns around the world. Many more of them would be put at risk by the deployment of that Lithuanian brigade. And that would be a true test of Germany's commitment. Now, of course, that brigade has to be properly armed. And as we've discussed, that brigade is currently without its tanks and is being used as the test case by Boris Pistorius to push through the kind of reforms that he wants. It's his battering ram to a better Bundeswehr. And understanding how that process goes will give us an an idea again about uh, German resolve. A listener from Scotland asks, how can we
2: balance fast strategic decision making with democratic processes, especially when we're officially not on a war footing? Is it more complex and does it take longer rearming and building up a real deterrent force now compared to earlier
0: phases? This is an interesting question and one that comes up a lot in Germany where slowness is still praised as a virtue and deliberation is praised as a virtue. Um, but we can also see the cost of that slowness. We can see time measured in, for example, Ukrainian lives when we failed to help Ukraine sufficiently and people are dying. So there are are two imperatives here that need to be balanced. But I think the idea that they're in conflict is mistaken and misleading from the get-go. You can have democratically elected leaders taking strategic decisions. They have to justify them in front of their people, but what they shouldn't be doing is hiding behind the public opinion that they want in order to prevent them from having to take a decision. Well,
1: there you go, the public opinion that they want, because Olaf Scholz clearly wants public opinion to say something that it does not, in fact,
0: say. (laughs) It's important to take people with you. It's important to make that case publicly, and there will be plenty of other possible politicians from your own party or from others who are willing to point out the flaws in that case, as there always are, there will be analysts ready and waiting, um, and uh, including us, waiting to say where it's lacking. So announcing that actually you're proceeding at speed doesn't preclude a democratic process from, process from holding that decision to account. And I think this... Um, <sighs> is especially telling when you see a particular example about rearmament. So MBDA, who are one of the main makers of missiles in uh, Europe, who make the Storm Shadow, Scalp, and Taurus missiles, have very clearly said, we are waiting for the orders in order to be able to upgrade our production. Why? Because we need the legal permission as well as the order in financial terms to make it worth to or make it possible to invest in our capacity and start producing this lethal kit so there's a clear political block on that and it's actually being slowed down by leaders who aren't taking that decision, or rather they're taking a decision the other way, but they're not admitting it. The Chancellor Olaf Scholz has uh, made
1: um, a lot of hay at various times throughout this whole uh, war with incompetence, or the idea that he has the last word. So he really could take um, certain actions if he wanted uh, to take them. The problem is, is that there are so many actions that he is unwilling to take. We've seen this with uh, leopard tank deliveries, which... Uh, Uh, were debated endlessly before he finally uh, agreed uh, to them, partly due to um, public opinion being in favor and partly due to uh, parliamentarians in the Bundestag that were able to use that uh, to be able to put pressure on him. I do think that democratic process, when politicians and parliamentarians are doing their job in a democratic system, can actually um, help uh, enhance this whole process by putting pressure on the chancellor. We saw that the Bundestag really uh, did do that job when it came to leopard tanks. Where did it recently fail to do this job? That would be uh, with uh, tourist deliveries where there was a very politicized debate in the Bundestag recently, where the governing coalition parties, despite many of those uh, members within that coalition being privately in favor of delivering Taurus, uh, voting against a motion to deliver Taurus because it came from the opposition uh, Christian Democrats. This, of course, is ridiculous, and it does a lot to damage um, credibility and uh, public faith in the democratic system, especially when, as Ben, you've pointed out to us before, uh, that these same Government parties are probably just going to bring their own uh, motion uh, later on. Well, two, two of them will. Yeah, exactly. Not the SPD. Not the That's not the not Social going to be Democrats. Happening anytime soon. It doesn't help faith in our system from the public to be having this kind of politicking, to you know vote uh, against a motion to deliver tourists because it comes from the opposition party to eventually uh, table your own that you'll vote for, which says the same thing. As you've pointed out, that does nothing for public uh, confidence. Democratic process, I do think, can be very constructive if. Democrats are willing to do their job. And when it came
0: to this Taurus motion, they did not. Leadership is not undemocratic. Let's be clear, taking a position, having a strategic position is not undemocratic at all. I can't help but think that this is to do with the way that we've lost faith in our own systems at times and the lack of faith in the future of democracy to deliver. And so instead of saying, actually, it's a strong democratic move to take this position, to go out in front, to make the case, to do that leadership... Um, to take take leadership seriously. Instead, it's about muddling through and it's about maintaining an inadequate status quo. So I think this this relates to our bigger problem. It also relates to which leaders we're dealing with. To be honest with our people, this is the other thing. And that's what Ben Hodges was very clear about on episode three. Talk it to them they like talk adults. Talk to them like adults. And this is also what Andrew Micha said Um uh, recent, More recently, that Joe Biden hasn't done that job in the US either, he hasn't given that big, rousing, unifying speech that would have taken support for Ukraine out of being an issue for his administration and into being an issue for the American people and for America as such to get behind. So it's what you do. It's not the democracy, it's what you do with it, I think, that counts here. But again, that does require having those leaders. And we have a question on that, don't we, uh, Julian? Stephanie asks, what is really going on with Schultz?" Well, to truly answer that question, I think we'd need to widen the range of experts we draw on. Maybe we could ask that Polish jogger in for a chat. Aaron, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, For for those who don't know, that's an insider Berlin Berlin politics joke where Olaf Scholz was supposedly advised or reassured in his opinion by a Polish jogger he encountered on his way around the spray and the the parks here, Um, which may be one of the few people he does take advice from uh, other than his very, very close circle of uh, Wolfgang Schmidt, Jens Plutner and others in the uh, Kanzleramt. And we've we've been asked also... uh, we, we frequently address, question, address the, our listeners in the Cancel I I suspect they may not include those three, but we do know that people in uh, ministries around Berlin and around Europe do listen to our, our show. We've had very many... Um, positive comments on that, some aggrieved comments at times as well, where they think we've uh, been unfair to how certain things have played out. Um, but it's been very good to see that the show has got traction in the political uh, circles around Europe and in the US as well, as well as with uh, people who've engaged with us on Twitter and elsewhere throughout season one.
2: Dr. Rune Lindig would like to see Olaf Scholz and Jake Sullivan or
0: Jens Bloitner on the show. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, all, all I can say is... Herzig Willkommen, you'd be welcome here on Berlin Side Out. Um, you know, Chancellor Schultz, uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan, uh, Advisor Plutner, please do consider this your invitation to come on the show anytime. Get, get in touch with Julian Stöckler and he'll make the arrangements. For a very spirited discussion. <laughs> Absolutely, we don't put our punches here on Berlin Side Out. But that's part of the democratic uh, process as well, to have that debate and have that discussion. So we, Runa, we would be uh, delighted to see them on. We are very happy for your support as well, which has also been consistent throughout the series, and to have your questions too. He also asked why they
2: are pushing Europe into a direct conflict with Russia by not supporting Ukraine's victory
0: and the defeat of Putin. Well, indeed, I think we've touched on that quite a lot throughout the series and also in today's show, Um, but there's differences of opinion on this, and differences of vision quite clearly. Many of us do see that this is what is more likely to happen as a result of the current strategy rather than uh, defeating and properly thus deterring Russia in Ukraine. We risk emboldening the Putin regime, rewarding its aggression, and making an assault on ourselves more likely because we demonstrate our weakness rather than our resolve. Um, As to why there are many open questions about that, difference of strategic view um, I think is clearly behind that.
1: And also, uh, and something that we'll discuss a lot in season two as well, uh, a certain reading of escalation dynamics, which basically is a fancy way of us saying, well, what would Russia do if we were to back Ukraine to the absolute hilt, um, deliver tourists, which would enable the Ukrainians to hit things like the Kerch Bridge?
0: Arm ourselves to the teeth. Yeah. And this, all of this would make, in the view of many analysts and expert conflict, less likely. The other part of this, of course, is the kind of world you want to see afterwards. If you are clinging to the world of yesterday, if you are, as some claim, dreaming of going back to business as usual with Russia, then it makes more sense not to back Ukraine to win. If, however, you see that world as having been inadequate, if you think there's a better way to secure the future of democracies and to ensure that free people can thrive, then you'd probably be pushing for Ukraine's victory. On that issue
2: of whether you see the world as inadequate or adequate, um, we have a question by a Canadian listener who would like to know, is there any actual meaningful Western engagement with the Global South about Ukraine? And does, in turn, the West understand its neutrality?
0: There is meaningful engagement with the Global South on this. And one of the narratives that is most hard-hitting is the one that explains very clearly that Ukraine's fight is an anti-imperialist, anti-colonial fight, and that this is a Russian imperial power trying to impose its will on Ukraine and trying to subjugate Ukraine. Now, that's an experience, of course, many in the global south can relate to through their history and even through their, their present. So that's something that does resonate. However... What I would say is that, in general, the West is getting its engagement with the so-called Global South wrong. We should be saying, what What are actually the sources of our attractive power here? Why are we trying to woo the Global South when actually, they should be attracted to us and they should be coming to us and trying to get us on their side. I think this is more to the point. And so we've got that whole dynamic the wrong way around. Now to be attractive in that way, we need to give credence to it. And that's about, again, rebooting our attractive power at home. That means in economic terms, but it also means in showing um, why free societies can prosper and why they're better places to live. Aren't those the kind of lives that you would actually want to live? and genuinely making those available and open to more people around the world. So that means more inclusive ordering. It means better um, openness to those countries but in ways that serve the interests of democracy and liberalism. And let's be clear, Global South is an inadequate term. I give it about a three-year lifespan before we come up with something different. That's going to take a lot in terms of getting ourselves right, uh, but also getting our liberal ordering right. And it was interesting to see Margus Tsarkner, the Estonian foreign minister, writing in The Guardian on this just before Christmas. And I'd recommend people to go and have a look at that article about how the last few years uh, have really shown the poverty of great power politics of the kind that Russia has been able to get away with and why we need to get away from that in our democratic ordering.
1: Well, and China definitely engages in those particular politics. So I think this question will become certainly uh, more important as time goes on. China is obviously watching uh, very carefully what happens uh, in in Ukraine and what Russia is able to get away with, because it will use that as a precedent for its own playbook. So having new ways to engage with the the, the global south is important. But um, at the same time, um, there has to, I think, be uh, some expectations of the global south, um, which is to Simply say, look, (laughs) um, you know, if you are if you expect us to take your argument seriously about uh, sovereignty and non-interference and uh, those sorts of things, which are things that Global South countries often having uh, colonial legacies um, or legacies of colonialism in their own countries um, have to contend with. If you are serious about these things, then you need to, to to demonstrate that as well. I don't think that that is an unreasonable expectation for us to have, but also it goes to self-interest. You, you know, We also have to be, I think, clear about saying Uh, two countries of the global south look. Ukraine is a precedent.
0: Right, and I think uh, rebooting our strength also by saying, look, this is a conflict that it's clearly in our interest as well as in keeping with our values to address and to win uh, would be a great way of demonstrating that kind of strength. Because if we don't do that, particularly in Europe where it's so close to us and so obviously in our interests, What does that say about our ability to intervene meaningfully or solve meaningfully more complex conflicts further away? So this sends all the wrong signals in all the wrong ways. But I do think, Aaron, that we have to acknowledge the failures of the past, Western engagements with the world, the kind of ordering that we made, the hypocrisies involved in that, and the damage that was done to liberal ordering by things like the Iraq War, by the failure in Afghanistan. And one lesson that neo-idealism certainly learns from the failures of neoconservatism is not to impose democracy at gunpoint. That doesn't work. And trying to do so only brings harm rather than good. So I think we have to demonstrate our strength, we have to demonstrate our resolve, we have to demonstrate our attractiveness, and we have to show that by decisively engaging with liberal ordering, generally liberal ordering, doing more business with those who are like us in that regard, we can bring more people into our circle by showing that actually we have not only the moral but the material superiority that we claim for our societies. So by giving real meaning and credence to that, that's I think the best way to actually engage the so-called global south in the long run and to work to a situation where there is not a global south, but rather there is a democratic world.
1: Thanks very much to our listeners uh, for those questions and to Yulen uh, for bringing them up. Now, uh, Ben, Yulen, we've talked a lot about serious recurring themes uh, here as well as audience questions, but I know we've had a few other highlights uh, this particular uh, a season. Uh, remember that train ride to Prague?
0: Yeah, that's one of my f- absolute favorites. We had such a great crowd together and doing two events back to back, one in Berlin and one in Prague gave us the chance for the beautiful train ride, which I recommend everyone to to take, you go through the Elbe Valley. After you've passed through the Plain of Brandenburg, you go through the Elbe Valley, through the Elbsandsteingebirge, as it's known, the Dresden, the Saxon Switzerland, and it's truly spectacular landscape. And the onboard board restaurant serves truly spectacular Czech Pilsner together with some excellent schnitzel and together with a group that included um, Alice Stolmeyer, Alexander Vintman, Chris Alexander, Edward Stringer, uh, Paul Mason, even Roderick Parks, formerly of this parish, um, as well as Julian, Aaron, myself and Yannick, our team here at uh, at DGAP. We were able to really get into the kind of conversations that we wanted. Also with, with Jessica Toll, who gave you, I think, one of your... Uh, 아멘 <목소리나> favorite moments of the season, Aaron?
1: Yeah, definitely. We uh, bonded over the Union Jack dress (laughs) that uh, uh, Jerry Hallowell wore as part of the Spice Girls when we were talking about uh, Cool Britannia, the Britain of the 1990s. We were talking about that in relation to having that attractive society, that sort of soft power that really uh, makes people want to emulate you or to be like you, right? That's right.
0: I mean, it's not not only team power on Berlin Side Out, it's girl power too. Uh, We bring everything from extended deterrence to ginger spice. And for that, we've actually managed, and this is my, my last highlight, was breaking out into the cultural world. We were interviewed by the magazine Ex-Berliner, and I was also interviewed by the uh, fashion magazine Dust, as a result of things we've been talking about on the podcast, um, which was not on my bingo card for this year, I have to say. But do check out both Ex-Berliner, which has some nice photos of Aaron and I in too, and uh, the There's fashion magazine Dust,
1: yeah. where, we,
0: uh, where we managed to push the discussion on uh, new ground strategy beyond the traditional Traditional policy world.
1: Well, I mean, from Union Jack dresses to talking about uh, new idealism in fashion magazines, it's been quite a season.
0: It has. And we want to thank you all for sharing that journey with us, as well as to thank um, our research assistant project assistant and helper all-round helper extraordinaire Julian Stöckler and our producer Hendrik Werner who's been with us here from the beginning who's had to sit through almost everything we've done um, and has borne it with a magnanimity that belies a wonderful character so thank you very much Absolutely. indeed as well as his generosity of spirit in uh, in editing um, thank you to all our listeners for joining us for season one fear not Berlin Side Out will shortly be back not only with season two that we can confirm is going to be taking place where we have more discussion on the kind of missing links between some of the things we talked about so far. But in the interim period, a very special Munich Side Out that will be coming from the Munich Security Conference in a couple of weeks' time.
1: Yeah, we are looking forward to that for sure, as well as bringing you a second season. Do uh, stay tuned for updates from us about that. But for now, that's not just it for this episode, but for this season on Berlin Side Out. Huge thank you to listeners and our team. Until
2: then, from Berlin, ciao und bis bald.